Hey, turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, would you? I'll knock that over for sure. Second Corinthians chapter one. It is good to be here in the house of the Lord with you. Um, last week was not here as we were gathered with the uh, a lot of the people we had. Um, I believe the final tally was over a hundred people gathered together at our family camp last week. Um, it was a phenomenal time. I, I cannot tell you how far it. Uh, uh, exceeded all expectations, and we are excited for what the next year even holds as we uh, make that an annual event down there. It was a great time, but it's good to be back together and have everybody here in the house of the Lord, the family gathered together, amen? Yeah, so let's, uh, let's pray before we get started. God, I just pray, as we did when we opened, Lord, that your spirit would speak. Lord, you've spoken through donkeys before, Lord. So I ask that you speak through another one, Lord, and that you just, your word would come forth this morning. I pray, God, in particular, in light of this particular message, Lord, that you would bring comfort to people who are in difficult seasons. And I pray, God, that you would encourage ministry from those who are in good seasons. But no matter what season we're in, I pray that the final results of this time spent in your word would be a greater dependence, a greater leaning on you, Jesus. May you be your king. May your life be lived through us to a greater degree today than even yesterday. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Second Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 8, but uh, I'm going to get a running start as we read this. Um, what we want to do, first of all, is I, I have to admit, kind of fess up, I, if I'd planned ahead a little better, I would be starting Second Corinthians today. We actually started 2 Corinthians like two weeks ago, had a big old intro sermon with background and history and all those kinds of things, and then just took off for two weeks, essentially. I mean, we had Father's Day message, so we didn't do any 2 Corinthians stuff then, and then we were gone for family camp last week. So if I had it to do over, if I had my druthers, whatever druthers are, if I had some druthers, I would have waited and I'd be starting that now, but um, God's sovereign over even my mistakes. So here we are in our second sermon here in our series going through the book book of 2 Corinthians. And just to give you, if I can take just a moment to give you again the backdrop through which Paul is writing these things, through which the Holy Spirit is speaking, the situation that the Spirit's speaking into, I think it will serve us well. Um, we need to remember, we just spent a year in 1 Corinthians, and, and so we know kind of the backstory there. Paul, he, he's a, a pioneer missionary, as it's referred to. He's a guy who goes into a city, and he went to cities. He would start a church raise up leadership, and then he would move on to another place and let that church, you know, kind of go. And then they would go and spread the gospel into the more rural areas around those cities. That was sort of his plan. And so he did this in Corinth five years before the book of 1 Corinthians was written. Went in there, starts a church, you read about it in the book of Acts, moves on to some other areas. And then as time goes by, about five years actually, he gets word of horrible improprieties that are going on in Corinth. There was all kinds of stuff, sexual immorality. Um, they were getting drunk during communion. They were suing one another. They were divorcing one another. There was great divisions in the church. There's all sorts of problems. And so he writes the book of 1 Corinthians to deal with that. And 1 Corinthians is an abrasive letter. It's an in-your-face letter. It's not a very popular book to preach through. In fact, it's much easier to find commentaries written on 2 Corinthians than it is on 1 Corinthians, because a lot of people just don't want to touch it. I mean, it deals with a lot of hot-button issues, from gender roles to sexual immorality to money, you name it, it's all in there. And so Paul writes that letter to deal with issues. Well, then a season goes by. And now Paul's writing 2 Corinthians, and he's writing to deal with issues again. Because, and you can go back and listen to our first sermon on this, but there's a lot of things that have gone down in Corinth in the time since Paul is gone. So he's got to deal with some issues again. He's got to deal with some theological errors that are going on. He's got to deal with some cultural influences where instead of the church influencing the culture, the culture is influencing the church in a really negative way. So he's got things he has to deal with there. He needs to teach his people how to discern a true apostle of God or a true disciple or teacher of God from a huckster because they have listened to all kinds of false teachers and they're being duped again currently. He needs to, to restore his relationship with them. 
His relationship with the people of Corinth has been damaged and he's trying to get them to understand, hey, even in that first letter, yes, there were some abrasive things and, I, and he, I'm gonna deal with some more issues in this letter, but, but listen, I am for you. In 1 Corinthians, he writes that he is their father, their spiritual father. He says specifically, you don't have, you have lots of people, lots of friends, lots of influences, but you don't have many spiritual fathers. And he's telling them, I'm, look, I'm for you. The things that I'm writing about, they are for your good. They are written in your best interest. I'm not just trying to bully you around or steal your joy. I'm writing these things by the inspiration of God to increase your joy and so that you might do well. And so he has to do all of these things in this letter, but in the backdrop or, or under the shadow of major allegations that have been cast on him. You see, there's a group of people who have come through and been teaching the people in Second Corinthians, the people of Corinth here in this time that Paul will refer to later in this letter as super apostles. And he says that sarcastically. He might use fingers if he was in our culture. Super apostles. And what it is, is, is these people that have come through and they look the part, they look polished, they look majestic, they look regal. They're men of prosperity, they're of blessing, of wealth, of all these things. They come in with eloquent speech. They seem to know some scripture. And they come into this area and they start teaching the people of Corinth and they are throwing Paul under the bus so that they might gain a following. And so what they do is, since this Paul's their spiritual father, and he, they're trying to say, don't follow him, follow us. So they start attacking Paul. So they say things like, Paul, he's greedy, he's after money. Oh, sure, he doesn't take offerings from you guys for himself, but he's always taking it for other churches, right? What do you think he really does with that? And so he tries to get them to doubt him, to think Paul's sneaky. Um, he, they say, hey, Paul is a theological bully, He's just always telling people what to do and telling you what to do. And, and, and listen, he's keeping you from God's glory by teaching all this suffering and service nonsense. This idea that, look, Paul is telling you to give up things and to, to put yourself last and that suffering is godly. In the meantime, God wants you to just have a ball and enjoy and prosperity. They were the original prosperity theology preachers. It's been around as old as time. And in fact, they would use this in particular to attack Paul. And they would say, look, Paul, if you don't, you think Paul is, is an apostle that you should follow? Look, first of all, he's not an eloquent teacher, not like us. He's ugly. He's visibly repulsive, is what they say. Um, he's weak. And then he's always, you ever notice Paul, he's always going through stuff. He's always suffering because of this and he's being attacked here and he's thrown in jail here and he's broke here and he's beaten here and he's shipwrecked here and you know, on and on and on the list goes. And what they do is they go, look, if Paul was a real anointed servant of God, don't you think God would protect him from this stuff? I mean, don't you think all these things that Paul's going through, those are, that's evidence that you shouldn't follow him. And so they attack Paul big time and you'll see it as we go through 2 Corinthians. They attack him big time with regards to the suffering and the difficulty that he goes through. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians to them under this backdrop of allegations, particularly involving suffering in these things. And Paul doesn't go, oh, I'll explain it away. It's not as bad as you think. Oh, some of that's gossip. Some of that's rumor. Oh, it's shipwreck. Well, I mean, it was a sunny day later. And you know, I mean, he doesn't explain any of that stuff away. He actually leans in and goes, oh, you don't even know the half of it. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what my suffering was like. So we are going to deal with the topic of suffering, trials, difficulties, afflictions, and temptations going through the book of 2 Corinthians a lot. Now, I've already noticed, this is our second sermon in, and I've already noticed as, as a teacher here a difficulty with it because you can come to this feeling like I'm just saying the same thing kind of over and over, and that's hard. And you, you can come to other conclusions where you're like, okay, we're talking about suffering, and like, for example, I wanted so bad in this message to jump into Philippians 1 where Paul talks about my suffering is for the furtherance of the gospel, and but... That's coming later in 2 Corinthians. And so there's this whole like, ah, oh, it becomes really difficult to preach through in a lot of ways. So I would give you the same kind of, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Disclaimer that I gave you the first time. We're going to be looking again today at this topic of suffering and difficulties and afflictions. But this is not an all-encompassing treatise, if you will, on the topic of suffering. There is much more to say. There's much more to say about difficulty, and we will get to that. 
But what our goal is going to be as we're going through 2 Corinthians is to take the verses that God has before us in that day, and today it's only four of them, and to say, what do these verses tell us about suffering? And let Paul, well, let the Holy Spirit through Paul teach us as we go through all them. You guys got all that? Capiche? All the kids say capicho when you say that in the kids' wing, just so you know. So capiche? Capicho. I don't know what that means, but... There we go. So we're going to look at four verses. We're going to start in verse eight of chapter one. Uh, But I said I was going to get a running start. So let's look at verse three. You confused yet? I'll mess with you again. Let's start at one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too." If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so in those final four verses, that's where we're going to really put our attention, verses 8 through 11. What does Paul, what does God through Paul teach us about suffering? We're going to look at just four things today. Number one, and if you're taking notes, and everyone should. Number one, suffering is real, and we should be real about suffering. The first thing we can see when we look at these verses, suffering is real and we should be real about suffering. Paul says in verse 8, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. It was real. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now again, people are attacking Paul saying that his suffering is proof that he's not really the anointed one of God. And Paul doesn't shy away from it. He goes, oh, you don't even understand. The suffering was real. It happened. In fact, it was worse than you even realized. We were utterly burdened, despairing of life, he says. Now, now there's some people when you say, okay, how how should we deal with suffering? What's the way that we should do that? There are some people within the Christian community, particularly in the United States, that believe that Christians should make strong efforts to downplay or ignore or pretend that we aren't suffering when things are going on in our lives. Um, There's a lot of people that believe this. And the reason is, is some would say, man, if Christians are suffering and going through difficulty, then what is it that we have that's going to make us attractive to the world out there? So if we go through difficult stuff and people see we're just as miserable or we're going through just as much hardship or more than they are, what's the purpose of that? And so they would say, you need to fake it. And they'll take passages out of context, like put on Jesus Christ. It's a put on. So let's fake it. Let's pretend like nothing's there. And we'll just go on through life. And that way, people will look at us and they'll be like, man, look at the church. It's so rosy and sunny in there. It's like just rainbows follow them everywhere they go. And and so there's a lot of people that feel that way. Or they might at least feel like, look, if we as Christians show that we are suffering, then that makes God look bad. And we don't want to make God look bad. So we need to fake it. It's probably on us anyway. So, So let's just pretend. And they'll tell people, man, just put on a happy face. Just smile, fake it, and you get what we do all the time. How you doing, brother? Oh, doing great. Liars. Right? It happens all the time. Well, Paul didn't do this. When Paul was attacked for suffering, he leans in and he goes, no, you, listen, the suffering was real. In fact, he says, these are such strong words. 
utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. In other words, the burden was so big, we could not carry it and we just wanted to die. If our friends say that in our current culture, we start to get nervous, don't we? We would consider that like suicidal type talk. We start worrying about people when they say things like, I'm done, I, I, give up. I, I would rather just die right here where I'm at. This is Paul the Apostle saying these things. Paul was completely in over his head, emotionally and physically, for, for much of his ministry. So much so that he goes on to equate it with a death sentence. He says, it was, just, it was so bad, it was as if we had been given a death sentence to die, and there was no hope whatsoever of being delivered from it. Paul does anything but fake it. He's very real about his suffering. He says, this suffering I experienced was real, and then he's real about it. So Paul, Paul doesn't put on the fake, place, fake face, and this is why this is important. Some people would say, if we're real and honest about the difficulties we go through, then does that really give a good testimony about Jesus? Well, it does, because this is what it does. Talking about the things that we go through and letting people understand the difficulties we go through in life and being honest about them, and first of all, that is what it is. It's being honest versus being dishonest. Because if someone says, how are you doing, and you're doing miserably, and you say, fine, and smile and fake it, that's lying. <laughs> that is lying. That is bearing false witness. Oh, but I'm doing it for their good. It's lying, okay? So when we are honest about the difficulty that we go through, it's not that that makes God look bad. You know what it does? It points to the reality that we live in a broken, fallen world, just like Genesis says. Suffering entered into the world in Genesis 3. It has been here ever since. And suffering, difficulty, and trials is just part of the normal human existence for all of us. Suffering is just normal. Faking it would be abnormal. Trying to pretend that something that happens to everyone doesn't happen. Suffering, the fall in Genesis 3 guarantees us suffering happens on a lot of different levels. I mean, in the very, when we see what's referred to as the curse, when God comes in after the sin, he, he first of all points out that they're going to have suffering relationally. Adam and Eve, you guys used to live in harmony and things were great, but it's not going to be that way anymore. You're going to have difficulty and strife in your relationships that you didn't have before. And so how many of us have had seasons where we have had difficulty and strife and butted heads or heartbreak or depression or whatever it is in relationships with people around us? How many? All hands up. No lying in here. God's watching. That's just part of the normal experience, right? But, but there's more than that. What about just natural suffering? I mean, God talks about the fact that work will be hard. The earth, Adam's going to be a gardener. The earth's going to fight back against him now. It's not going to just be compliant to his work. There's going to be thorns. There's going to be thistles. He's going to have the sweat of his brow. Life's just going to be hard. Childbirth's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. There's just going to be natural suffering that's just part of going through life. We've all experienced that. But it doesn't even just start there. I mean, there's just going to be plain old physical suffering. By the way, Adam and Eve, death is now in the picture. You are dying. You are now corroding slowly but surely. Everyone over 40 definitely understands this one, right? We talked about this. You wake up hurt, don't even know how. It just happens. Pulling hammies, taking a shower these days. I mean, it's just, oh, you young people, you wait. You're laughing now. But one day you're going to be like, man, Pastor Jeff was right about that. I see what he did. Maybe I can be comforted by the comfort by which he was comforted. But, but that, look, suffering's just a natural part of human existence. So, so think of this. If suffering and difficulty is a natural part of the human existence, how much more so the person who chooses to follow Jesus Christ? Because you are making a decision to do things like put yourself last for the benefit of others. That's going to make things harder. You're choosing to take on a lifestyle of service to others. That means more sweat on your brow for the benefit of other people. 
You're choosing to take on a lifestyle that says, I'm going to forgive people who offend me in relationally, even though I want to punch them in the nose. And it, but you're choosing to say, I, I'll eat these things. I will swallow an offense, if you will, just as Christ did for our offenses and sins on the cross. That's going to make life even harder. Not to mention the fact that you are created in the image of God, and when you choose to live in such a way that brings glory and uh, uh, manifests Jesus Christ in the world around you, you're in a world where Satan right now has a lot of free reign. So attacks are going to come. So, so if suffering's part of the normal human experience, we should understand as Christians, it's, it might be worse for believers. And so what do we do with that then? I mean, Peter even writes, he says this in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at fiery trials that come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is normal. Don't freak out. Hard things are coming. Okay? So it's real. We want to be real about it. We don't want to fake it. We don't want to pretend that they aren't there. But, but you know, the pendulum can swing too far. So we can go to Eeyore. You know what I mean? Life is bad. How will we ever get through? And just mope and whine and complain to anyone and everyone who will listen. And I'm begging you not to be that proverbial wet blanket on everyone else's life either. Because what ends up happening is the suffering can com become completely insufferable. Right? You know those people, right? They just, you're just like, hey, have you ever smiled in your life? You won the lottery. Well, they're going to take all the taxes. Oh, come on. You just had a baby. It's already pooping. Like, that's not the way to handle it either. Because in reality, that does show I'm a Christian. I have no hope. I'm suffering just like you, but I don't have any hope any different than you do. So what's the answer to that? What do we do with this? How do we approach some of these kind of things? Some would say, act as if you're not suffering at all, but, but here, here's, here's a better answer. David, in the Psalms, when you read through some of the Psalms, David will write, let's put, in fact, let's put one of them up. I think we have Psalm 142. Do I have a graphic for that? Do I have a graphic for that? There we go. Psalm 142. So David, when we were in Israel, we studied this psalm pretty well because David, who was anointed king of Israel, he was the one who was supposed to secede a guy named Saul. He was going to be the new king. And so he's anointed king. The spirit comes upon him. The, the promise has been given. And then David spends a significant period of time either back shepherding, waiting on his turn, or literally running for his life as Saul chases him down and tries to kill him. And David finds himself in a complete desert landscape, an area called En Gedi. And there in En Gedi, we visited it last month when we were in Israel, there's one spring that still to this day runs down the canyon, so you have this one little vein of green. And I mean, when I mean vein, I mean like 20 feet on either side of this spring, it's green and everything else is brown. And he's hiding in this canyon, and he's hiding from Saul, and this is where he cuts Saul's robe, and then he's depressed because he knows he sinned against God and that, and there's a lot of difficulty going on. And so David writes this psalm, and in this psalm, David's going to cry out to God. But as we read through this, this is what I want you to notice, that there's a difference between crying out, oh, life is lame, how will I ever get through this, this is going to be so difficult, versus crying out in faith. Crying out in faith is being real about the difficulties, being real about the struggles, but also committing these things in faith to God, saying, I, I don't know, but I do believe. So I'm holding on to God, but I'm being honest about the things that I'm dealing with. And you see these throughout the Psalms where the hearts are poured out in difficulty, but they resolve not to the answer to the problem, but to faith in God in the midst of the problem. So, so take a look at this. David writes this in Psalm 142. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There's no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. 
Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, but you, for you, will deal bountifully with me. Now, when you read this, is David being honest about his difficulties? Absolutely. I mean, it says he's calling out his complaint to God. And that's something that we get nervous about, complaining to God. Whoa, careful. But David is honest about his difficulty and what he's going through. But if you notice as you read through that, he never lets go of God's hand. He's saying, life is difficult. No one's helping me. I'm all alone, but you will deal bountifully with me. I don't know how you'll do it. I don't know when you'll do it, but he is declaring his trust in the Lord. This is what it means to say, I'll be honest about my suffering, but our suffering has hope. And it's not hope in a circumstance. I hope this works out. It's hope in a person. Jesus Christ is our hope. So we can be real, as Paul is about difficulty, but, but we are real and we cry out with faith. Amen? You tracking with me? Number two, this passage teaches us that suffering has a purpose. And the purpose is to depend on God. Okay, now I've talked about this one several times before, but like I said earlier, I have the microphone, so I'm gonna do it again. I have a lot of pet peeves in life. Uh, Metal on teeth. Oh my goodness. If you are eating near me and you scrape the fork with your teeth to get the food off, it kills me. Like the hair on the back of my neck, just ah, it's awful. So I have lots of different pet peeves, but, but here's a Christian pet peeve that just drives me through the roof, and I see it all the time. It's one of those Christianese, Christian sayings that we just throw around in any given situation as if it were scripture when it is absolutely not scripture. You guys know which one I'm talking about already, some of you? It's this. It's say, hey, hey, look, 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 I know you're going through difficulty, but look, God won't give you what? More than you can handle. Have we all heard that before? God won't give you more than you can handle. That is the worst. That, that, is, that is only not a Bible verse. It teaches the exact opposite of what Scripture declares over and over and over. Heritage family right here, please never say that again. And, and it, not just because it's Jeff's pet peeve, because it's wrong. It's not Scripture. Suffering is not a call to self-reliance. Suffering is not, oh, I'll just grin and bear it because God's given me what I need to get through this on my own. That's not the point of suffering. What does Paul say about suffering? He says it very clearly, verse 8. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. Paraphrase, we could not handle it ourselves. He goes on to say, we despaired of life itself. We wanted to die. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on who? God, who raises the dead. Difficulty and suffering and trial for Christians is not a, God knows you can handle this and he won't give you more than you can handle on your own. No, he often gives us way more than we can handle on our own. And he does it on purpose. He allows us to go through things that we can't possibly handle on our own because he's trying to teach us to depend on him. That's the whole goal. That's the whole point of it. Um, Kent Hughes says this, he says, our weakness is an occasion for God's power. And so when we tell people, God won't give you more than you can handle, we're telling them by default, you don't need to turn to God, you got this. And that's not biblical in the slightest. It's supremely unbiblical is what that is. And so you go, okay, what, what about other passages, Jeff? Aren't there other things? Yeah, they, if you look closely, they all do. So take a look at James chapter 1, verses 2. Familiar passage on suffering. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials here can be temptations, afflictions, or difficulty. For you know that the testing of your personal strength. No. What does it say? Testing of your faith. Faith is our trust that God's got this. So he says the trials and difficulties are testing not of your fortitude, not of your strength, not of your ability to get stuff done, but of your, say it with me, faith. And it goes on. Know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, which means patience, endurance, firm resolve. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, 
lacking nothing. Now, listen to what he's saying. He's saying God uses difficult situations to grow you up so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Everybody see that in the passage? This is what he's saying. But here's what you have to understand. God grows his children up differently than we grow our children up. We grow our children up to be independent. We grow our children up to go pay their own bills, to go do their own work, to go run their own houses, to do their own things. But that is not God's desire for his children. He grows us up to be more dependent on him. So someone who is mature in the faith is not someone who's got it. Someone who's mature in the faith is someone who leans on Jesus more today than they did the day that they got saved. You understand that? Someone who is a mature believer is not someone who never has difficulty. A mature believer is someone that leans on Jesus more in difficulty than they did the day they first met him. That is a major part of Christian living. And we tend to look at like the mature Christian as the person who's all polished. But the idea is, is that polished spiritually, if you will, is someone who's leaning on God. And understand though, don't, don't go too far with this. Suffering itself is not a virtue. Okay, so you can go, okay, then therefore, if I want to be more spiritual, if I want to be more godly, I need to suffer more. So what I'll do is I'll turn off the power in my home, and I'll just tell my kids they're going to have to grin and bear it, and I'll, I'll quit my job because we make too much money, and what I'll do is I'll just make a lot of these decisions that make life hard for me, then I'll suffer, and God will be pleased. No, please don't do that. It's ridiculous. Okay, suffering is not a virtue. The goal is not to suffer but, but here's the goal. The goal is to grow in your trust in God so much that you live without fear of suffering. And it's a big difference. Hear that again. The goal is not suffering. The goal is living in reliance on God so that you do not fear suffering. So the person who gives up their life and moves off into the mission field and it's hard and they're suffering for God. Is the goal suffering? Should we all go do that? No, but we should live in such a way that we have such dependence and reliance on God that if he calls you to go do something like that, you're not afraid of the suffering that that will absolutely entail. So that when you are called to put your life second so that you can minister to other people in your neighborhood or in your home or in your church, that that's okay because you trust that God is the one who is your provider, not you. And you can make decisions that might not even financially make sense if you know God's calling you because you know for a fact that the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God has this so you don't have to. That's what a mature Christian is. A mature Christian trusts God in everything, regardless of what that decision could mean in the short or even long term. It's a big, big difference and so I, I had a conversation with a guy here in our church just, just about a week ago or so. We were talking about this, and I, I, I told him, I said, look, you got to understand, man, I know you're going through some difficulty, but, but suffering and difficulty is a tool in the belt of our great carpenter that he uses to mold us and to shape us into who he desires us to be. It's a, a page in the playbook of our coach. It, it's, it's a textbook in the school that God leads us through to grow us up into maturity. And he goes, I know, I just wish he used hugs and rainbows more often. I was like, well, okay, but then you'd be about as strong and have about as much endurance as a dude who's into rainbows and hugs, I guess. I, I don't know. But that's just not God's plan for you. So just understand that the goal isn't suffering, and your spiritual rank, by the way, doesn't depend on suffering either. Our spiritual rank, the only spiritual rank we have is the fact that Jesus Christ is holy and perfect, and he has put his righteousness on us. So other than that, we are all spiritual rank of private at best. Is there anything below private, recruit, I don't know. Whatever that is, that's us, right? So those who suffer more are not more spiritual. The goal is just to depend on God. Amen? Number two. So number three, if the first one is that suffering is real and we should be real about suffering, number two, suffering has a purpose. Number three, for those who trust in Christ, and that's important, for those who trust in Christ deliverance from suffering is assured. Now, don't write down deliverance from suffering is assured. That's not true. For those who trust in Christ, deliverance from suffering is assured. He goes on to say, verse 10, he's delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. 
On him we have set our hope, which means trust or confidence with assurance. We trust in such a way there's no question it's going to happen. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So how do we know that God will deliver us again? You're talking about putting hope in God that there's no doubt he will deliver us from difficulty. So how do we know for a fact that he's going to do this? Well, for some of us, we've lived long enough to experience enough things in life. We've seen the hand of God working through them. Paul writes about this in a different letter that we studied a couple years ago in Romans. I've got the the text for this in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. He says this, but we rejoice in sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance here means stick-to-itiveness. It means that you just hold on under the pressure. You don't cut and run. So this suffering means I will sit here and I will continue to hold on to Jesus in this difficult situation. I won't cut and run to these other things that the world has. So he says this, we rejoice in sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Another word here, provenness, proven character, that your faith is real, that you're not a phony He goes on and says, character produces hope or assurance that as we go through difficult things and we continue to trust in the Lord through difficult things, that as we come out of those things, we see, I'm not a fake. I'm a believer. This faith I have is real. I'm I'm, I'm his. I am actually one of the redeemed. That's one of those things that, that we can look back to as we go through difficulty with assurance of our salvation as we see that our faith in God held through situations when any, many other things could have tempted it away. And then character, excuse me, and then hope does not put us to shame. In other words, it's God saying, look, I won't make a fool of you. You won't be like all those people who put their hope and their assurance in all these different things that let them down over and over and over. I will never do that to you. I will not let you down. I will not make a fool of you. It may not look the way you think. It may not come as fast as you think. But I will not make a fool of the person whose trust is in me. Now, some of us have lived through life long enough to experience some of those sort of things. Some of you maybe not. Maybe you haven't seen that yet. And maybe you want that kind of assurance. How do I know that God's going to deliver me from these different things? But really, the simplest way for us to know with absolute certainty that God promises to deliver us is to understand the reality of this. Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our assurance. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that even as death entered through one man, Adam, so life enters through Jesus Christ, who resurrected from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus, he says, is the first fruits of the resurrection for all those who follow him. So for those of us who are put our trust in Jesus Christ, your most difficult problem you will ever face in your entire life has already been solved. You've been forgiven of your sins and been put back in right standing with God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Everything else is a very distant second. And so with all of these other things that come up, job issues, relational issues, health issues, whatever they are, we go, look, Jesus went through that to die for my sin. He rose from the dead to prove his power over death. And the scriptures tell us he's the first fruits of the resurrection. If I can trust him to deal with that and to go to that length to deal with my issues, I know for a fact he's going to deliver me from this. And the scriptures say, his resurrection, we are buried with him in baptism, but those who die with Christ are raised to new life in Christ as well. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is way more about the fact than just, as amazing as this is, that our Savior lives, but it's a promise to you and I that you will too. The resurrection is absolute proof positive that God will get you through your difficulty. And you go, well... But what if it's cancer and it's terminal? Well, I I can't tell you. I'd love to. But I can't tell you with absolute certainty that God promises to deliver you from that specific circumstance in the way that you want it here in this life. But I can tell you this much. We are way too short-sighted. This life is nothing compared to that one. And no one in the history of the world has died from cancer or car wrecks or anything else, got to heaven and said, this is a bum deal. Everyone who got there said, I'm staying. And I would love to have been here sooner if it could have been arranged. So don't be so short-sighted. 
Don't, don't focus so much on what's right in front of you that you forget the greater picture of what God's doing. Amen? Amen. So the resurrection is proof. Because Christ rose from the dead, we know that we will too. And then the last thing is this. For the believer, by the way, that should explain, by the way, the for the believer part of that. Because if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if your faith is not in Jesus Christ unto salvation, there is no guarantee for deliverance from suffering. The suffering you're in right now might not end, and it might be the best situation you'll be in for the rest of eternity. That's the hard truth. And I would love to be able to paint a different picture for you. But that's just not the truth. The truth is, life's hard and hell's worse. But Jesus is good. So I urge you, man, you don't have to walk forward or come to an altar call or go to a Billy Graham convention to put your faith in Jesus. You can say it right now. Don't waste another minute. Don't take the chance that your heart will beat one more time without putting your faith in Jesus. That would be a foolish move. Amen? So the last one, for the believer in Christ, there is comfort through suffering. For the believer in Christ, there is comfort through suffering. Paul talks about how God himself comforts us. He talked about it in the, earlier in the chapter, the comfort by which we were comforted. Um, God, we, we see even in the Psalms that God is near the brokenhearted. That God does minister to the suffering. At family camp last week, we had a night where we sent the kids off to play some games and eat a bunch of candy or whatever we ended up doing with them. And, and around the campfire, um, everyone else, we just had an opportunity where there were four people who had asked to share their testimonies around the campfire, and they just shared their stories. And honestly, it was my favorite part of the entire weekend that we were there. Rafting was great. Movie night was great. All that stuff was great. We found a rattlesnake. That was cool. Everything was great. That's not going to talk anybody into going next year, is it? Sorry, it was a little one. Anyway. But, but that night around the campfire, hearing these people tell their stories, it was awesome. And, and here's what I loved about it. And it wasn't planned. It just, it just me and Sam were talking and praying and just like, so who, who, who should we pick? And just God just sort of, some names just floated to the top, if you will. So we didn't know what they were going to share, none of that stuff. But, but as people were sharing, here's what we got. We didn't get the testimonies that say, Man, life was really hard. I, I woke up in the back of an El Camino with a heroin needle in my arm and I was wiped out and I was drunk and uh, uh, you know, all this stuff. And I prayed and boom, I was standing in Beverly Hills and things was better and just life has been sunny ever since. It was none of that kind of stuff. It was none of that. You know, I, I struggled here and then I got saved and I've had no problems ever since. It was none of that. You know what? They, all, they were testimonies of things like, I'm struggling actually today and I'm going through stuff now. And I've been walking with the Lord, even some of them in positions of influence for God for years, and I still don't have it all figured out, and I'm having a really hard time, but, but all I know is this, God's with me. That was the common story through all of them, God's with me. God has not taken his hand off of me. Even when I took my hand off of him, he has held me and he has been with me. There were not dry eyes. I mean, it was just amazing, just a great night to hear that kind of real, someone referred to it as raw, it's just real testimonies of the fact that sometimes life's hard and we're all sinners and we make mistakes and sometimes we're victims because we made stupid choices and sometimes we're victims because other people did things to us but in the end life's just hard and a lot of us are still trying to figure it out after walking with Jesus for 20 30 40 50 years and we still don't know but, but it's not on us it's on him and he's always been with me Oh, those were beautiful testimonies to hear how God comforts through hardship. So God comforts, but Paul points out something that is important for us to note here. He says in verse 11, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Church, we have an opportunity, a privilege and an absolute responsibility to minister to the suffering, to come alongside people. When you understand these things about suffering, you have been given a gift by God and an understanding about certain things in life that not everybody else has. And you have the ministry and the responsibility to come alongside people in these difficult situations and minister to them in a God-glorifying way. And there's a sense where, for a lot of us, that can be a scary thing. You hear someone's in the hospital, or you hear someone's going through a difficulty, and you feel like, oh, I guess I should go, but I don't know what I'm going to say. But if you understand these things, you don't have to say anything. 
You can just pray for them. You aren't their savior. You aren't their deliverer. God is. All you have to do is throw an arm around him and point. He knows. I don't. He does. Let's pray. That is phenomenal Christian ministry. Just that right there. And Paul's telling him, you must help us by prayer. Now, allow me, if I can, to to put a disclaimer in here of sorts. Um, There is a place for professional, needed, counseling help. Particularly this passage, we talked about this when we went through the book of Acts. We don't have time to deal with it today. But you can go all the way back into Acts and you can see um, there is a very strong case to be made that Paul's not just suffering, that he's full on going through a, a type of depression here. And so we need to understand, I think we've messed this up in Christian communities for a long, long time because we allow for any other organ in our body to get sick except our mind from some time, for some reason. But that's changing. Current Christian culture's changing. Um, Studies, even writings by some of the greats like Charles Spurgeon and people like that who have been really honest about their own difficulties have changed our perceptions, our understanding of Scripture in areas have grown. Even most recently, you got guys like um, um, uh, Rick Warren, whose son committed suicide, was it last year? And some of those things have brought some of these things to the head. And so understand something. There's a place, I've seen people in my own family go through this before. There's a place where we can't see the forest for the trees, we, we, we can't seem to get our mind around what's going on. We're, we're, we need help. And, and if you're in that position or if you know people that are in that position, come get a hold of us and let us connect them or connect you with trained Christian doctors, psychologists, physicians, counselors who have studied these things, who have the tools available to help people get through these. That, those, that is so important that we understand, and it is a needed thing. So, so when that comes up, do that. Please, I beg you, come talk to us. But that being said, listen, the ownness, if you will, the responsibility for Christian ministry overall and certainly long term is not on professional doctors. It's on just the body of Christ in general. He says, you have to pray for us. You have to help us through this. And so no matter what you're going through in life, you will, and no, no matter how, no matter how mature you become, if you will, as a believer, you will never, by God's design, be in a place where you don't need the body of Christ in your life to minister to you, ever. That provision is not in the Bible. So church, we need you. We need you to pray for one another. We need you to serve one another. We need you to look out for one another. When you hear someone struggling, come alongside them. Those of you who would feel led, the meals ministry thing that we talked about, you have no idea what a blessing that is to people that are going through issues with a hospital or or stuff like that. But the ministry of mercy and coming alongside someone in difficulty and ministering, it's invaluable. And you don't have to have all the doctrinal, theological answers because you understand that the reality is, is that Jesus saves, not you. And so we get the opportunity because we can know these things and then the storm hits and it might take us a few days to get there. You know what I mean? And so we get the opportunity to come alongside other believers and help them see in whom their strength lies. Help them see. We get to be a source of comfort. God works through us to comfort people through suffering. And really the only message we need is to tell them their hope is Jesus. Their hope is Jesus. Don't tell them they have to pray more. Don't tell them they have to read more. Don't tell them they have to go to church more. You tell them, turn to Jesus. Cry out in faith to Jesus. As we're closing here, there's a a thing that's referred to as the Heidelberg Catechism. It was written in Germany in 1563. It's a a statement of faith. and, And in it, it's got these different questions and then sort of answers that this church council put together. And this one right here is beautiful. It says this, what is our only comfort in life and in death? And it's this, that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all of my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil, that he protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, no hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, 
he also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That totally should have got an amen. What a beautiful truth that is. What a beautiful truth. Christian, we have hope. Life's hard. Suffering's real. Be real about it. But we have a hope. And it's not a, a, a theory. It, it's not a procedure. It's a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. Will you do me a favor? I want you to stand with me and let's read this together as we close. If you can see it, read it. It says this. What is our only comfort in life and death? Read with me. That I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil, that he protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's pray. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil, and he will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. First Peter 5 says, And after you have suffered a little while, the, great, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Lord, we pray those things. We again look to you even in this time as our keeper, the one who our help comes from, our savior for salvation and our savior from difficulty and trial. And I pray, God, in this moment, Lord, that people would be actively turning burdens over to you again, that they in their own prayers to you right now, Lord, would be casting again their cares upon you for you care for them. And I pray, God, that you would minister by your spirit comfort to your people. In Jesus' name.